Hello, I'm Rebecca Castellino, and this is Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to talking to artists on the fringes of the Canadian art scene. Adrian Crossman is a queer and non-binary white settler, artist, educator, and curator, currently residing on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples in Hamilton, Ontario. Crossman holds an MFA in Visual Arts from the University of Windsor and a BFA in Integrated Media from OCAD University. Their practice explores the effective qualities of queerness, and they are interested in the liminality between the digital and the physical, considering how the term trans and non-binary apply to media as well as gender. Crossman is a co-founder and co-runs the online arts publication Off Center, and is an assistant professor in the School of Arts at McMaster University. Our conversation was recorded in Hamilton, within Treaty 3 territory, on the ancestral land of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe nations, under the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. Hello, Adrian. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? Not too bad, pretty good today. Awesome. Where are you right now? Uh, so I'm in the attic of my house, uh, in the east end of so-called Hamilton, Ontario. Um, and my dog is downstairs, so unfortunately, I'm on my own up here. Aww. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask a little bit if you could describe your practice for listeners, just like a general aesthetic, or or maybe even describe like one of your favorite pieces. Yeah. Um, so I very much identify as an artist, curator, and educator. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm very much like those are like the three thirds of my artistic identity um in terms of my art practice my practice is extremely interdisciplinary and I've been reflecting on it a lot lately in how I'm often investigating a lot of new material explorations but what unites it is very much like the conceptual um through lines so Mm -hmm. a lot of my practice is based on like exploring the affect of queerness and how to create a space that like either creating a space for the audience that literally feels queer or signifies the feeling of queerness. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like through like lighting, colored lighting and a lot of the aesthetic choices I'm making that feel more like turning a gallery space into less of like an institutional white wall space and more of a, like I'm also really interested in installing in um, non-traditional art spaces. So more like project spaces or strange spaces that feel more community grassroots based. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of my practice is also kind of both like having like a physical um, IRL, like practice uh, enmeshed with a digital practice um, and trying to blend those spaces of the virtual and the quote unquote, like real. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also have a curatorial practice and I teach full time at McMaster as a studio art professor. How have you found teaching studio art has like changed your approach to making or, or has it? Uh, in a very, the most pragmatic way to answer that, I would say that, um, so I got hired on a teaching load um, where I teach seven courses a year wow. and it just takes up so much of my time that I haven't had that much time to <laughs> make. So it's actually like really changed my practice in the sense that I'm really consumed by um the administrative side as well as the teaching side from last year it was like September to the spring this year it was like actually September into the end of June because I was teaching three semesters in a row 
Um, so really taking advantage of these summer months to make, I feel like it's, it's really affected like my creative schedule. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also I think it's given me a lot of time to sit and like reflect on who I want to be as an educator and who I want to be as an artist and observing like how young people are approaching art right now. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, I've spent less time in the last two years making and a lot more time like thinking and reflecting. And I think I'm like finally ready to like start producing more again. So it's just been like a really good time to like absorb a lot. Cause I also learned so much from my students and from like, you learn so much having like, you can like know something. And then once you have to teach it, you actually like learn it again in like a totally different perspective. <laughs> and then in terms of um, your curation, when you talk about like grassroots spaces and, and things like that, do you find it's easier to make them into queer spaces? Cause I'm also really interested in that. I was just wondering what your approach is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess the last, actually a lot of my curatorial projects, like a couple of them have been in like, I've curated a couple shows at X space when I worked there, but then I curated a show in Toronto in a garage. And then the last show that I curated that was in a physical space, um, was in Windsor, uh, in a tiny, like converted storefront that had like carpeted floors nice. and these weird blinds and like three people that I had done that I had been in the MFA program with, or like it was a recent alumni and then two people that I'd been in the program with, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. we just like, I decided to curate this show the last summer that I lived in Windsor and it was such a strange, weird space, but it also like really, it forced us to be really flexible. And so I feel like we very much like queered this weird little space that was not an art space. And it also kind of forced us to like queer our approaches to installing because we had to like, nothing about it was conducive really <laughs> to the way that we wanted to show the work. So even like how to hang a projector, like, what kind of lighting to use, where we were going to blow a fuse. Um, it was really hot and there was like mildew in the basement. So we just had to like figure out a lot of things. Um, but I, yeah, I think like both as an artist installing and someone curating, there's so much potential to work differently in non-institutional spaces. Mm -hmm. because they, they force you to work differently. And they also like the recontextualize the recontextualization of that space for an audience is really interesting, especially if they're used to encountering it as something completely different. Mm, yeah. Also, there's just no rules. If you're installing yeah. in, like your friend's bedroom, like you can do whatever you want, really. But like at an institution, you have to like ask to punch holes in walls or things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think about the your thesis exhibition and how it was in someone's home mm -hmm. and it felt like this like domestic queer space which I think was like so interesting to like house like this like and it was small too right it was like very mm -hmm. like the tone of it was really interesting because it was like the small little space in this domestic queer space and I think it actually really suited it and it and I I felt more comfortable to engage with that work in a like relaxed way than I maybe would in an institution yeah, I, I feel that. And even installing there, um, like I had to do that nice, like even line around, but all the walls mm -hmm. were like cracking and warped. So it almost gave me an excuse to be like looser with it, um, which I was really grateful for. So that was kind of like a happy accident, I would say. <laughs> well, that's yeah, because like a straight line isn't queer, right? Exactly, exactly. Oh. And it ended up looking really cool anyways. And like it was more of um, 
the perception of it was a lot smoother maybe than like what it actually <laughs> was if you looked closer <laughs> well it's um it's like a queer approach to curating yeah you know like in in the actual like installation of the work itself because like one thing I thought about one thing that I got challenged on a lot when I was in my MFA was even like an installing work it's like well how do you install work in a queer way is it is it high is it low is it on the ground is it like like I started installing works in some of my exhibitions and like I put a shelf up really high and like kind of hide a piece in the corner and like maybe you'd see it maybe it wouldn't but Mm. it's like kind of all these like elements that like defy a traditional way of encountering and installing work actually like queers queers the installation and approach of the work which I also think is a really interesting way to think about it like removed from the content but in like the methodology of doing it it's queer yeah yeah no I and I think that that's like why I was personally drawn to curating um when did you start curating at the same time that you were doing your artist practice or, or which one came first for you the very first show I curated was I think it took place a year after I graduated my undergrad Mm -hmm. so I went to OCAD for five years I graduated in 2012 and then in 2013 I curated a show at Video Fag called the Aesthetics of Failure which was like a glitch art show and it was just like had over 20 artists um approaching the concept of glitch within their artwork and so it I did start working as an artist first but Mm -hmm. very soon after kind of entering the world more professionally as an artist I started curating as well because I was just like like I was working in glitch art and I was like it seems like so many people are interested in this how do I like foster a community Mm. of people and then I just started realizing like as a queer artist as a like digital media artist there is a lack of community for spaces like that because like a lot of the digital artists I knew were like all over the world and like friends on like Google Hangouts and like Facebook Mm -hmm. and stuff, but there wasn't a ton of like physical community. So I think like, yeah, not that long after really like starting to show in galleries as an artist, I got really interested in how I could also like foster community and like create opportunities and spaces. Yeah, for sure. And I think that Off Center is a really good example of like one of the projects that you started in Windsor um, that do like it does actually create community <laughs> and bring people together. I hope so. Um, I feel like, yeah, so that project. So Luke Mattiford and I um, run Off Center and just for the context of folks that are listening, it is an online publication that publishes writing about artists and um, exhibitions and artworks and events that take place outside of like the larger metropolitan centers um, within North America. And we can started to conceptualize it when I was still in Windsor, but I think, I don't remember if we launched it while I was still in Windsor or shortly after I moved to Hamilton. Oh, gotcha. Um, and it might've been shortly after I moved to Hamilton. Cause we were really interested in the fact that like he was living in Windsor. I was living in Hamilton. So we were mm. both, you know, Hamilton's still, Hamilton and Windsor still have like larger populations, but they're not like these art centers like Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And so we were thinking like, what are these spaces, um, cities as well as more rural spaces that like, where like art happens and interesting things happen, but no one covers it, you know? And how could we actually start to foster like recognizing and like archiving, right? Because archives mm-hmm. are so important, especially for 
like more marginalized communities and marginalized practices that don't get written about. It, it's kind of like if it happens and no one writes about it. Yeah. <laughs> Not like did it happen, but it's it, it's harder to find that history. So we just wanted to try to create a space where like people were talking about these things and also like creating this like archive. Um, and I'm glad I'm glad that you feel like it is fostering a kind of community because we feel like that too, but it also feels, especially during the pandemic, mm-hmm. everything feels so disembodied. Um, yeah. It's hard to know how much we're having an effect, but I think, you know, we really wanted to like throw an event at some point or like maybe do some, some in-person stuff. So hopefully eventually that can happen. But the fact that the fact that we're fostering some kind of like cross, you know, regional dialogue is really nice. Yeah, I think there's just so much money, it seems like, is, is what really what drives it. Like, there's so much money in Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto, that these publications pop up, and then all those things get covered. But there's, like, these deserts, and, like, we see this with, like, even news media, where, like, nothing gets covered, and it'll just yeah. be lost into the void. But there's amazing stuff happening. One thing that's come up for Luke and I that's been, like, a strange thing for us to navigate is that a lot of the people that we know that are working outside of these larger city centers, like Alex Rondo, for example, especially like, so he's someone that like works very rural Mm -hmm. um, in Northern Ontario. He has curated both of our work (laughs) and we worked collaboratively with him, but he's also like, like he's running this between pheasants uh, space, which is a pheasant coop in Northern Ontario um, that he's turned into an exhibition space. And we've, we were like, oh, it's really important for us to cover that. And we've had like a lot of the same people want to like write for us, but we've realized that like, well, we were just like kind of concerned about this conflict of interest thing. Cause we were like, mm-hmm. we're really interested in this thing. And we have access to a few people that are interested in doing the work. And we know that there's more people that like just are off our radar and we really yeah. want to expand that. But we were just like, do we cover this thing with this person who's also like worked with us and curated us? And it's, <laughs> It's been a really, but then it's like when you're in a community and no one's covering it. Exactly. And you have the opportunity to also cover it. I think that that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's documenting your own community. And I think that like this podcast is a perfect example of that. Um, in that our new audio editor is also a former guest on the podcast. So like you can listen to like Emily's own art practice, but she also edits it and all like these different layers. But mm-hmm. at some point, somebody's got to do the work. And it really is going to be people from within the community. So I think as long as you like acknowledge it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, being transparent about it. But like we we had this big talk because we were like not sure how to go with it. And then I was just like, we were just thinking about like, well, if the option is no one covers it mm-hmm. or we cover it and then just acknowledge that sometimes we're also covering the things that we're doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, but yeah, like I guess the alternative would be like, or no one writes about it. Yeah, exactly. And like, for me, when I started writing, I got a lot of pushback, just like writing for like, it was really, yeah, I think just women writing really intimidate people. And I've never seen that more obvious that when I released my first couple articles in like the student newspaper, but I said like, no one else was writing about the arts, like, and I'd written about it every week. So I'd rather write about it badly every week than it not get written about at all. (laughs) that's true right and it's like you can't wait until you can like do something perfectly to like release it into the world we all just have to like learn by doing and like I had never run a publication before and I had like learned to I learned 
about writing about exhibitions and editing other people's writing when I worked as a programming coordinator at X-Space. Mm-hmm. And I'm really thankful for that. But it's like, I had just kind of done that a bit through that job, but I never had any formal training. So like Luke and I doing this is very much just like, like we pay for it fully out of pocket. Mm-hmm. We make sure that even though the writer's fees are very low, um, we pay everybody that writes for us. We make sure that everyone's supported. Um, but because we pay for it too, we like have the freedom to do kind of whatever we want. Like we're not like held to any kind of like funding bodies expectations, which is nice, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it is like very much like, like Luke has been running a exhibition space in Windsor on his own or well, he was doing it on his own for a while. Now he's he's doing it collectively, but it's just like all this stuff where it's like, we don't really know how to do this, but we're figuring it out. Yeah. I think that that's like a queer DIY kind of thing. It's like, okay, nobody's inviting us in. So we're just going to start our own party. Totally. I think the flip side of that that I get worried about sometimes is like who's still being excluded Mm, yeah because it's like I'm white I'm like able-bodied like I'm queer and trans but I know that I have like still a ton of privilege Mm -hmm. um in the arts and in the community and obviously there's been ways that I've been excluded but other ways that I've just seamlessly you know like had little to no barriers with a lot of other things and I I do wonder sometimes I don't want to be in a situation where it's like, I'm just talking about me and all of my friends, mm. you know, it's like trying to expand that. Um, and I think that really just takes like time yeah. to build that community and trust and like really do the, do a thing for long enough that other people start to want to get involved, but like kind of still being somehow like showing people that we're open. We don't want to be like this, like cool guy group you know for sure and I think art can be so clicky and for me whenever I enter art spaces like I immediately try and like squash that but it it is really easy pattern to fall back into yeah and so much of community is just like the people you know and then like it's so hard to especially now in the pandemic Mm -hmm. like meeting new people is so challenging I actually like really I really liked that workshop that you and I were a part of um (laughs) The other night, Re- Rebecca and I were, like, in a workshop run by Ed Video about, like, artist statements versus artist bios. And it was just, like, I feel like everybody in the group was queer. And I got to, like, <laughs> meet some new queer, like, artists and poets. And it was just nice to have a little, like, peer mentor editing session. Yeah, I find, honestly, ever since I entered, like, the online disabled community and especially, like, the queer pocket, um, that nice intersection there of, of disabled queers... Um, the online community is just so rich and like bountiful and there's just people that are down to talk and share ideas and I think that that can be extended into the real world like once we all get back out there like I'm excited for it (laughs) me too yeah I I really hope that translates to the real to the quote-unquote real world more because like also it's like this is also the real world right and it's like we have discovered a lot of things during this time that have Mm -hmm. made communication and reaching out and working together a lot more accessible to folks Um, yeah yeah and I think that's a good transition to talking about um the queer bath zine that you were working on because you put that call out and like collected artists during the pandemic right yeah so last summer I'm trying to remember if it was like somewhere between May I think I put it out in the spring and then I extended the call like all through the summer into Mm -hmm. September um and I also like so yeah to give context uh I just I love to take baths. (laughs) I love bath bombs. I really like bath bombs that like turn the water like a weird color. Yes. And I have a piece 
um, from a few years ago. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's like a, um, it's a fleece blanket of like an image of my legs in the bath and the tub water is like orange and you can see my no future tattoo. Awesome. Uh, and I just like thinking about that. I've talked to a lot of people about that piece in the way that it's like, to me, it's like having confidence in like my body hair and my queer body and like, just like really celebrating. Like often I think, you know, the world can be a very hostile place for Mm -hmm. queer bodies, especially queer bodies that like really present as non-normative. Yeah. And when we have those moments, especially when we're on our own or maybe like intimately with a partner or a close friend um, or a lover who's like, you know, you have these moments of intimacy that feel safe and secure. So I'm thinking of like, when I take a bath on my own, it feels like this like escape. Mm. Uh, and I'm really doing something for myself. And I was thinking of those moments, especially during the context of the pandemic. And I was like, wow, it'd be so great to like make a zine where queer people just like bathed and like photographed themselves and like submitted. And then we just had this like a compilation of images. And I got a lot of really great um, submissions and one thing that I wasn't totally so I was thinking kind of like of the zine as like this product but a lot of what I got when people were submitting their photos was they were like oh I like actually like had this really beautiful experience with my partner or I like like a really good friend of mine submitted and he was just like he he took photos in the shower of his like legs and his body hair. And he was like, he's like, I had this intimate moment with myself where I just like really like accepted my body more yeah. and like had this like active self love. And I was just like, Oh, I didn't even think about how much it was creating these moments for people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It felt really beautiful. Yeah. To like share that care with other people. And I think even looking at images of other people, um, like for me, this is my first summer growing up my leg hair and it feels so mm-hmm. silly because like it's so soft and like barely there. I'm like, why did I not do this before? But it was through looking at pictures and seeing my friends with like their leg hair that like I, I really came to like accept that, yeah, that's a part of my body that like I don't have to get rid of every week or so. <laughs> no, and it's like you can if it feels good and you can grow it out if it feels good mm-hmm. and you could have no feelings about it, you know, like neutrality, but it's, it's body hair so loaded, you know, so loaded. Like it, it's such a loaded thing. And even before, even before I like really came into my transness and I was still identifying as like more cis, like I've always had a lot of body hair. And I think there was a point, you know, like through my like tweens to teens, like kind of getting like passed down like from my mom being like you have to like you know get rid of your body hair and I have like really mm. sensitive skin and like I if I got it like waxed or sugared or something I'd get like these like ingrown hairs and it would break out and it'd be like really painful oh, and uncomfortable yeah. and I was like why am I doing this mm-hmm. you know and I did it for like at least 10 years yeah. and then I think at one point I was like I just I just want to grow it out because I don't have to deal with like this discomfort and it it took a couple summers where I was like dealing with another kind of discomfort where I just mm-hmm. be like so insecure, like going to the beach or going out. And now I've like, I'm actually a lot better at like wearing shorts in public. Awesome. Um, which is nice. I still have a lot of anxiety about going to the beach because it's yeah. just so political for people. It's so political. And it has, I always, my chant for like when I enter like cishet spaces is like, how does this affect you? Oh my God. Right. Like it's like, <laughs> I think it just activates 
a really specific anxiety in people where Mm. like it's like they I was talking to my partner about this but it's just like people who feel like they've had to suffer or do something their whole lives and then they see you just like oh you've grown out your body hair and they're just like mad about it almost because <laughs> like maybe for cis men it's like that's what we do that's not what you do and then maybe for cis women it's like well I have to shave my leg oh. and it's like you could actually just be like no you can all do whatever you want <laughs> you know I feel like my mom always grew out her leg hair and like fully still does um because she's just like doesn't care <laughs> but my dad would always point out and be like why aren't you shaving your legs and it was definitely other people pointing to my legs and being like oh your stubble is growing in but uh, you just have to not care at some point because it, it's it's too much to deal with I just feel like then I would be like why aren't you shaving your legs <laughs> yeah you know? like if you just turn it around I feel like you can just like fizzle that like you can kind of just like render that question because like how how would he possibly answer that I don't know my my whole thing is how does this affect you now so yeah. I'm like, how does this impact you like what is, who's this hurting <laughs> Well, and it's just like, it's like, that's shaming, right? It's like, like society is just like constantly shaming us for our bodies in all these different ways. And it is just like such an act of like self-care and self-love to just like let your body be the way that it is. And the fact that like, the fact that growing out something that's natural on your body Mm -hmm. is like an affront to people. Like it's actually like a bunch of work and maintenance to like get rid of all of your body hair. If you're just like doing something natural, it's like, I don't know. It does not make a lick of sense I think it's a time thing too um like when I started living in this space it was like a DIY warehouse space um with like a bunch of tomboys and queers and they never wore makeup or like shaved their legs or anything and like we were going to the hardware store one time and I was like disgusting and I just went and that was my first time like not putting on makeup before I went outside and it was so liberating you save so much time (laughs) totally yeah and it's like everyone's on their own gender journey right Mm -hmm, and I think it's mm -hmm. like that's why I'm so interested in like femme as a gender presentation too because it's like it's so intentional it's like I've actually thought about all these things and I'm doing these things like like I'm not femme but the people like I like love fierce femmes and it's just like (laughs) to like be so intentional about your gender presentation and really have thought about it rather than like I'm doing this thing because I have no choice in it. And like society's told me I have to do yeah, it. Therefore it's true. Yeah. It's so different. I think Natalie King's like style is just so iconic of that. And like, I just think yeah. about her when I'm getting dressed in the morning. I'm like, what would Natalie do? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Natalie's awesome. <laughs> this week's podcast recommendation is episode 33 of one from the vaults, a bunny in the front seat. In this episode of OFTV, Host Morgan M. Page looks at the tumultuous life of early gender clinic patient, sex worker turned businesswoman, Patricia Morgan. Oh, but that's um a good way to start talking about like the club scene because I feel like femmes and like lesbians and queers kind of gather in these spaces, but also like we get really dressed up and it is kind of performative and like does a lot of cultural references. Um, if you want to speak about that, like how it relates to your work or or even just like your life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't even remember the last time I was at a queer bar. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think as I was leaving Toronto, it was kind of like some of the last days of some of the West End queer bars. Like I know that the Beaver just closed during the pandemic. But before mm-hmm. that, like, like the Hen House was my favorite yeah. um, queer space. 
to totally nerd out here, like, I don't know if you know the band The Organ. Yeah. Um, but they, like, started that bar. And, you know, like, when I was a teenager, it was just, like, this, like, band of queer women from Vancouver making, like, really cool music. And then when I, I was, like, such a, you know, fan. And they opened up the hen house. And I remember, like, the first time going to the hen house and, like, one of the members of the band like served me nachos and I was like trying to keep it together. (laughs) Um, But you know, like spaces like that were really formative to me. And there was something so like community and like DIY about that space. Like I know like Mm -hmm. when that space started, they like someone like wallpapered all the bathrooms with like, um, like yearbook images from like an old yearbook (laughs) and they got all of their mixed, mixed, mixed mesh furniture from Craigslist and it was like just a really cool space uh it got a lot more gentrified before it closed Mm -hmm. um but you know I think about a space like that as like a space that I literally experienced but now it doesn't exist anymore and um to segue into my work a bit so Mm -hmm. I made this print which is an homage to the hen house but it's in the style of um it's in the style of the gay club that they go to in But I'm a Cheerleader called The Cocksucker. Yeah. <laughs> there's like this famous, like there's this like scene in the movie uh, where one of them has like a matchbook. And so I took the design from the matchbook, which is just, like this really intense mm-hmm. like rainbow gradient. And there's like a rooster on it. And then in like rounded font, it says like The Cocksucker. And I just like kept the same background and drew a hen instead and like wrote the hen house. So it's this, this mishmash of this like, virtual space which is like this imagined queer bar in like my favorite movie ever which is like when I'm a cheerleader which is this queer movie from the 90s that I saw as a teen which was very formative to like me coming into my queerness and mashing that up with like a bar that like I went to a lot in my 20s which was very formative to like my queerness in my 20s but the fact that none of them exist Mm -hmm. anymore Mm -hmm. none of them like they exist kind of in the same space now like they exist in this memory and almost in this like fantastical imaginary space. And I thought that that was really interesting to connect the way that media has really formed me and like a lot of my queer identity. Mm-hmm. Like I was closeted as a teenager and then even into my, like it took me a long time to just like publicly come out. Yeah. Like I was by my early twenties, but you know, I was really during that time and it really translated into my twenties. Like, really into like all the queer media that I could access because that was my queer community and my queer culture Mm -hmm. so many of these like virtual imagined spaces in film and television started to occupy the same it's it's I started to like find connections between like the death of the lesbian bar right as this Mm -hmm. like space that used to exist and now like almost like the lesbian bar feels like this like imagined space that doesn't exist anymore the dodo bird or something (laughs) yeah and so I was really thinking about that and I'm not sure if I answered your question properly. (laughs) But no, I, I think even just thinking about imaginary um, versus the real and like these things being held in your memory, um, John Waters movies like almost feel like a lucid dream because of all the colors. Like even talking about the poster was this rainbow gradient, but like the house that the people in the movie go to with like the two gay men who decorated it, like everything's rainbow. Yeah, it's it's funny because I'm drinking out of my like I don't know if you saw the mug that I made. Yeah, yeah. I'm drinking out of my queer mug right now because there's this like scene where um Megan, who's played by Natasha Leone, 
uh, escapes the like conversion therapy camp that she goes to, um, that her parents kind of like force her to go to in the film and she like escapes it and she like flees to this house by these two queer men who had been like former students of this conversion therapy place that had also escaped and then they take in the like they take in the students so the like runaways basically and uh when Megan gets there Dolph who's like the other he was like kicked out of the camp he's wearing like a head-to-toe like rainbow <laughs> striped like pajama outfit and everything is rainbow and then she, like one of them is drinking out of this like white mug and just like a massive <laughs> in massive cap letters it just says queer on the oh mug God. and I was obsessed with it so I like made multiples of that mug basically they're still selling those mugs at art met if anybody wants no uh when he sips from that mug I think he's like there's no one way to be gay or yeah. one way to be queer and it's just so funny to see him like drinking from that as he's saying it and <laughs> just like she's, high camp. she's like She's like, teach me how to be a lesbian. <laughs> and we're just like, oh, honey. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, and I think, like, the aesthetics of that movie are just so heavily reflected in your work. Like, the pinks yeah. and the teals and, like, the purple. I was wondering if you want to talk a bit about, like, the visual references that you that you use yeah. in, your, in your practice. Totally. Um, I was told by a, a good friend once that my work feels very metropolitan <laughs> in terms of like the aesthetics. Um, and so I grew up in Niagara Falls, uh, just like a stone's throw away from Clifton Hill. I'm not sure if you've been to Clifton Hill, um, but it is like the tourist strip. It's oh, kind of yes. like a mini Las Vegas strip. Yeah, but- yeah. Niagara Falls there's like the Rainforest Cafe there's like a bunch of neon signs and I feel like I really like took in the like campy neon colorful aesthetic of this like tourist mecca space when I like throughout my whole life Mm -hmm. and I didn't I think it was like really subconscious but I didn't realize how much like the aesthetics of being in that city Mm -hmm. and being so close to all of the like really loud um tourist attractions informed like my aesthetic taste yeah um and so I think there was something about like the campiness there and then like you know like to me but I'm a cheerleader is just like to me it's like the perfect film in a lot of ways like it's (laughs) the aesthetics are beautiful everything's so thought out like the way they deal with color is so symbolic but it's so aesthetically pleasing and there's all these things happening that I feel like you don't even like like you'd have to like watch it like five times to really like absorb oh yeah um so many of the choices that they're making and so there was something about how intentional they were with all of the visuals and the visuals are very loud but I feel like they really inform it and I think I just I don't know I just like the influence there of of all of those things like I don't actually I don't even know how to fully articulate it but I think (laughs) I just really like absorbed a lot of that and in my work, um, one thing I really like to do is, like, I, I hate overhead lighting. I mm-hmm. feel like I saw, like, a Twitter thread a while ago about how overhead lighting is homophobic. It is. It is. I was told by my the bisexual <laughs> men that raised me that it is homophobic. Yeah. And so, and my partner makes fun of me for it all the time because I'm like, <laughs> we just need a lot of lamps. Like, I, we never turn the overhead light on. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm really like that with my work. It's like, I do not like overhead lighting when I install work and even though I make like work that like is on a monitor goes on the wall or is like more sculptural I 
the lighting is also like a key part of like creating an ambiance or the environment so mm-hmm. it's like colored lighting to me just has such an affect and like what happens in these films with color like they have these they have these effects on our emotions that we're not always aware of and I'm really interested in this almost like subconscious affective response mm. like if you walk into a room and there's like a pink hue in it you know yeah. it feels different than like a starkly white like light room for sure for sure um and so it's it's actually hard to answer your question because <laughs> I feel like so much of it so much of what I'm doing with the aesthetics of my work feels so hard to articulate in language yeah maybe I need to write about like how there's an overlap between like John Waters movies and like your art practice (laughs) oh my god yes please (laughs) I would love that (laughs) totally and and I'm interested in this idea of queerness like like existing in plain sight or like hiding Mm. in plain sight in a way and I think there's a lot to do with color and camp and some of the like visuals and iconography that exist in these films and throughout my work that like nod and like communicate something to a queer audience that like can get lost or not seen by a straight audience. Yeah, I think your work with children's like TV and cartoons really speaks to that because for me personally, like I'm so drawn to animation or even like Teletubbies like live action with like lots of bright colors. It's just so alluring. Totally. I mean, and the Teletubbies are, like, extremely queer, and I I don't know. I, like, follow them on Instagram because I just, like, am a big fan, and um, when I was making work in my MFA about Tinky Winky, I was, like, researching the fact that, like, Christian parent groups were, like, trying to ban the Teletubbies and Spongebob for being, like, queer media, and I was fascinated by it because I was like this is hilarious because like on the one hand it's absurd like mm-hmm. Spongebob is a sponge he's clearly not a heterosexual <laughs> he's a sponge so how can a sponge be gay or straight and then Tinky Winky is this like purple non-human non-animal like Teletubby who like is fabulous and like <laughs> has a little sway to his walk and like carries a purse around and he's like the, the shape on his head is a triangle. <laughs> oh my it's like God. an inverted triangle. And and so like the moral panic around it was both absurd, but then also kind of totally valid. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like SpongeBob and Tinky Winky might turn your ch- children gay. Oh my gosh. I remember when everybody thought SpongeBob was gay and I remember being very confused. But it's, <sighs> it's his eyelashes, and, like the fact that he goes in drag and like him and Patrick like raise a baby together. I, I love it so much i'm pretty sure that halberstam writes about like the queerness of um the whole like universe of spongebob right like the universe of spongebob is extremely queer like it is not (laughs) heteronormative even when you think about their relationships and their friendships and like it's really funny now to see like this like moral panic in the 90s and early 2000s play out in relation to like the teletubbies for example because now on social media the teletubbies are like super gay like they have a pride Uh product like they have a line of products that are like for pride Amazing. (laughs) and they're like all styled and they're like pride outfits on instagram and i'm just like wow this was kind of full circle and they're just like we're super gay everyone Oh my gosh, the cynic in me is going like, as soon as they figured out that the gays had money, like, of course, they start pandering to us. But also, it feels like it's it's come to like, full realization, like, 
I'm a big nerd about um, Steven Universe and like Adventure mm-hmm. Time and stuff. And like Rebecca Sugar, the animator, said she had to fight so hard for the first gay kiss. And, oh my god! Yeah, and like they weren't even out at the beginning of the series, but I almost feel like maybe if there was a gay creator on the Teletubbies all that long ago, like their dreams have come true. Yeah, because I don't think a straight person had that vision. No. Um, I also just want to touch a bit more on how your practice relates to, like, the binary, or the, I guess, not so binary at this point, um, (laughs) (laughs) digital, physical kind of realm in in terms of your sculpture, like, making digital work and physical work, but also, like, your cultural influences. Yeah, I mean, so, like, this very much relates to, like, what we were talking about with the hen house and the bar and like but I'm a cheerleader is it's like these like culturally like these spaces I'm really interested in like what that in-between space is so not mm-hmm. the binary between these physical spaces and these spaces in media but like what what kind of like that like non-binary like almost like like that psychological space mm-hmm. um that they take up I think that's really interesting and like you know I'm non-binary I'm not super I'm, I'm really I feel like my whole practice even even before I like realized and identified as non-binary in relation to my gender I, I my whole practice has constantly been about like picking down the binaries and like <laughs> like challenging the binaries so like I mean that's why I was interested in glitch um mm. in undergrad I was like oh wow you literally like are queering the like which is to get kind of like nerdy about it, like, you know, the ones and zeros of binary code that make up digital media that make up like video, for example, like you're querying the media mm. of this binary format and like, like breaking this binary format down by like corrupting it as a glitch. And to me, that was like such a like trans queer kind of like act to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the aesthetic of it also like looks really queer. Um, and then I started getting really fascinated by like, I mean, I'm not going to talk about them because I, they make me very upset, but like a lot of people have been talking about NFTs Mm. and this like value of like, like trying to like value digital art the same way that we like value like physical objects within the art market. And it's like, it's all symbolic, but it's like the beauty of the digital is that it's like inherently reproducible. Exactly. You know, it's like the aura. um, I, I, I talk about this a lot when I'm teaching, but like both Hito Sterl and Oliver Larrick um, have different iterations of basically expressing this fact that like the aura of the digital is not in its uniqueness of like being one object, but it's actually in its ability to be disseminated and to be experienced by a lot of people mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways. And I think like to think about digital aura, I think it's fascinating. And I was like, you know, my work's very, I'm really interested in working outside of the concept of the art market. And so like working digitally, up until very recently it's really hard to commodify that kind of work um but I really wanted to try to like break those binaries down between like digital work in a physical space um and so like I created uh and 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 also creating that space where like sometimes you don't even know if something's physical or digital yeah I found it super confusing looking at your work online like I I couldn't tell the difference a lot of time I was like what this is a physical rendering no and also like the translations right so it's like um I made this sculpture of a Furby where I like took uh I took like a McDonald's plastic Furby mm-hmm. and then I I tried to scan it but the scan wasn't working very well and then when I was on a residency in Windsor before I started grad school um they had a foundry there so it's like we did a mold of the Furby 
And so they, we had this aluminum mold of the Furby. So that's like the first iteration. And then I did a 3D scan of the aluminum one. <laughs> and then I had a 3D model of it, which is another iteration. And then I printed it out and then oh I gosh. painted it. So it was just like this like five-step versioning of this thing that went from like physical to copy to digital to physical again. Yeah. And so I'm really interested in these like, translations because when something's 3D printed, it's both kind of physical and digital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But also and that then, Furby was printed by McDonald's or somebody. And there's also like a thousand other of that exact same Furby. Exactly. Right. So it's like these like iterations, copies, versioning, like the aura of that Furby is also like massive. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, like the neon signs, like, so a couple of years ago, I got my first grant where I made actual neon signs. But before that, it was kind it kind of both came out of like necessity of like not having thousands mm-hmm. of dollars <laughs> for these things, but then also really fitting in line with my practice of being like, you know, I, I've done some 3D modeling before. I'm really interested in the aesthetics of neon. I made like a small series of digitally rendered 3D signs that look super realistic wow. and I would project them in a gallery space and it would kind of cause a bit of like an illusion for folks. Like That's some people so would fun. see right away. <laughs> That it was like a projection but then other times it would like take people a little bit to figure it out and like what I thought was really interesting about those signs is that and and both of like the two first ones that I made like lavender culture and mm-hmm. gender trouble also like very directly referenced the very d- directly referenced titles of um queer theory texts mm-hmm. or queer anthology queer anthologies um but what's interesting about the the digital rendering of them is like an actual neon sign is actually quite cumbersome in the in the sense that like it's attached to something. So it's either attached to the wall or it's attached to like plexi that's then mounted. There's hooks and then there's like a bunch of cables and wires. Mm-hmm. And the projection of the signs is just the text. Like you don't actually get all the other stuff. So it's almost like the way that our brains can like just see that thing without the elements of the apparatus that it would need to exist and like think that it's real yeah yeah and it's almost like a cleaner like more utopic version of like exactly yeah interesting totally utopic and then and then the actual neon signs that I got made one said utopia and one said dystopia so (laughs) awesome (laughs) Mm -hmm. no I think like the queer art of failure um like utopias there's just something like very queer and like that many people have theorize about that your work is is yeah really fueled by it seems yeah I mean this might be an interesting place to wrap up because it's related to some of the work that I'm planning to to do um over the summer but I have a tattoo um on my right over my right knee that says no future which is a reference to Lee Edelman's queer theory text um but also just to like the punk sentiment Mm -hmm. of no future and it's very like you know, living for the now, not living for the future, not living for the children. Yeah. So it's not like this moralistic thing, but it's like also, an, and, and also really inhabiting like the present day dystopia in which we live yeah. um, very much in the camp of queer nihilism. But then I'm also really interested in like, you know, Esteban Munoz's like optimism and this like, not yet here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I, I'm thinking a lot, I'm thinking of doing a new tattoo that's kind of an ode to to that mentality of mm. like the the horizon of queerness yeah. and I, I feel like a lot of my work and a lot of my identity in general is really being really existing between again in a non-binary way between these two poles of like queer nihilism and queer utopia yeah yeah and the tension there and the fact that like it's not a either or but like kind of like a both and 
Yeah, that feels very much like where we are right now. And it's so funny because I'm looking at your um, your felt work that's neither slash both, like right in front yeah. of me. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got that one. <laughs> yeah, I want it. I was like, I need one of these flags. Incredible. Yeah, and so I think that's like kind of where I am right now. It's like thinking about the multiplicity of those experiences and thinking about existing in between somewhere in between these two poles of like queer utopia and like optimism and horizon and like queer nihilism. Cause I feel like I really relate to both, but I don't fully inhabit either. Mm. Um, and I think that's really going to inform where I'm like going forward. And I think it's, you know, I, d- I did a piece um, for heaven is a place on earth two summers ago, which I think really ties together being in between those two poles and like those poles of like utopia and dystopia, which is like this tattoo on my left ankle, which just says exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's in the style of one of my um, pennants, one of my little flags. And, you know, I look at it a lot because it's like, you know, as a queer and trans person and just like as a person existing in the world, like I've struggled a lot with like those feelings of like sometimes not wanting to exist. And I think it's a really nice reminder of like, you can get really caught up in the theory and all these different ways of like how to be queer and how to be political. But I think at the end of the day, it's just like existence as a form of like persistence and resistance oh, that yeah. I just like, that grounds me and that I come back to. And it's like that in itself is enough. Thanks for listening to Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to the fringes of the Canadian art scene. If you have an artist that you would like to hear interviewed, would like to correct, and or fact check a past episode or would just like to chat, feel free to send me a message on Instagram at hoppingthefence or by email at rebeccaecasolino at gmail.com. Thanks to the OCAD Student Union for your financial support. And thank you to all of our patrons for your ongoing support. It truly does help me avoid burnout and keeps this podcast rolling. If you would like to support Hopping the Fence, please visit our Patreon to subscribe. Check out the show notes for more details. If you can't donate, no worries. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Audio editing for Hopping the Fence by Emily Reimer. Original artwork by Alex Gregory. And original music by Jessica Price Eisner. Thanks so much. Bye.